Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to have your company for another week of talking about something very special to me and you, El Camino de Santiago. A big shout out to my new Patreon sponsors this week, Mark and Danielle and Angelina. Thank you so much. And a very special thank you to my long-term sponsors, Rick Dunn, Melanie Shadlick, Kylie Fisher, Monica Wiley, Jane Equez, Cindy Maguire, Scott McLaughlin, Andrew Rennie, and Tom Labazinski. Thank you for helping to keep the show on the road, or the Camino. <laughs> the Camino is a series of pilgrimages. There are indeed 80,000 kilometres or 50,000 miles of Caminos around Europe and the world. I would love to have the resources to walk every step. The vast majority of your time would be pretty lonely, I'd imagine. Many of those Caminos would be very quiet. Tom Labazinski is on the Camino right now, and he wrote to me this week to say it's very, very busy on the Frances at the moment. Most walkers, he said, have no option but to be spreadsheet pilgrims. So good luck to you all. And if you're listening to this on the Camino, spread the word. Tell someone else about the podcast as we continue to grow and reach new pilgrims in all four corners of the globe. My friend Kelly sent me a note this week pointing to an article in The Atlantic by Arthur C. Brooks. Brooks is the William Henry Bloomberg Professor at Harvard Kennedy School and a Professor of Management Practice at Harvard. He's the host of the podcast How to Build a Happy Life and the author of From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. It's a lovely piece of writing about something we all hold so dear. Brooks says, If one surrenders to the music, the Camino becomes a form of extended walking meditation, a practice in many religious traditions. Each mindful breath, each mindful step, reminds us that we are alive on this beautiful planet. That's the Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh, who said once of meditation, we don't need anything else. It's wonderful enough just to be alive, to breathe in, and to make one step. Brooks quotes the Japanese theologian Kosoki Kiyama in his book, Three Mile an Hour God. He said he mixed Han's Buddhist interpretation with his Christian faith, writing that the speed at which humans walk is the speed the love of God walks. This week I want to focus on walking. Keith Smith wrote to me recently he practices prosthetics and orthotics. He and his wife Amy had recently returned from the Camino and Keith said he was surprised how many people had terrible blisters on their feet just days into the Camino, so I thought we'd talk feet and walking on this week's episode. Keith Smith is on the line from Missouri in the United States. Welcome, Pilgrim. Dan, thanks so much. I'm just so excited to be a part of and be a guest on the show this evening. It's uh, um, We listened to every single episode in our trainings. We went back through and listened to every episode we could of the uh, your Camino podcast, and it got us through all of the... Uh, all of our our trainings and uh, just excited to be here and to to give back a little bit, a couple of helpful hints to uh, to other pilgrims as they uh, as they make their way. Oh, how fantastic! I'll get to the Camino and your journey in a little while, but first, we're talking feet, as I said, and you say your feet are as important as your heart on the Camino. So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, you talked about orthotics. What is an orthotic? I sure okay. Well, I'm an orthotist, which means my background is I specialize in the design of prosthetic limbs, uh, bracing for many different orthopedic and neurologic type conditions. Uh, but we make orthotics as well. And when we're talking about orthotics, uh, like today's my typical day back in the office, um, I'm seeing patients with diabetes. I'm seeing patients that are runners, walkers, 
hikers, triathlon athletes, uh, with one big goal in mind for each and every one of those from an orthotic standpoint, and that is to prevent and create strategies to really prevent these blisters, calluses, because for someone that's in a running situation, it's definitely going to affect and impact what they're doing. A hiker, walker, same way. A diabetic can be even more of a problem because it can lead to infections and then amputation type things. So all day long, we're problem solving and working after trying to uh, prevent these types of things. And then if they do come to actually to deal with those as well. So that's what we do in orthotics. Okay. So why should I consider getting orthotics? What would be a reason why? Well, it, it, it can vary from just little modifications inside the shoes themselves all the way to needing a pair of orthotics. So some of them would be a pronator versus supinator. So let's talk about that would be the cause for the need to actually go the step of getting orthotics themselves. So a pronator means that the foot collapses towards the inside. Um, basically, the midfoot of the arch gives out. Uh, if you look at them from the back, there's a, an angle instead of being perpendicular to the ground, their ankle falls inwards. You, know, you think about somebody who is uh, ice skating for the first time and their ankles just all fall in and they're, they're skating down the ice uh, on the inside of their ankles. Um, that's a, that would how we'd be describing like pronation. So that's going to cause lots of internal pain on the medial or the inside of the foot. But then you take somebody that's a supinator or somebody that has a really high arch. These guys walk what we call tripod weight bearing. And tripod weight bearing simply means the first metatarsal head, the fifth metatarsal head, and the heel bear all the weight. And an orthotic would bring the ground up to meet every part of the foot, Dan, is what it would do. So that then instead of those high pressure areas there, um, it puts pressure over the entire part of the foot. Whereas the pronation, as we mentioned, that's more to get that foot out of that position of bearing all that weight to the inside. Because uh, besides getting blisters and calluses, if your foot pronates, you're going to end up getting uh, plantar fasciitis. You're going to have maybe posterior tib tendonitis. You're going to have all these things that, that start to appear that never did before because what are we talking about? 30,000 to 40,000 steps. When I look back at my, my health app after our days of walking and saw an average of 38 to 40,000 steps per day, I went, uh, okay, well, now this is making sense why so many people by, by day three, I couldn't believe how many people were uh, in really situations where, yeah, their heart and their passion is there for the Camino, but their feet is keeping them, the problems of their feet are keeping them from having that, uh, oh, I guess I would say that, that hell yeah, I made it celebratory type beer with the wave, the group that they've met during that day and, and over the days. And instead of sitting back and enjoying their evening, boy, they're spending their time just miserable and just taping and trying to deal with all the different, uh, different types of ailments that, that are going on. And I called it, I said, my gosh, there's a, there's a pandemic. I would call the blister mania going on. And that was just by really by day three. And so uh, that's why I thought it'd be just a, a great way to give back is to, uh, is to, uh, to contact you, Dan. Cause uh, yeah. I thought it's a good way to get that information out. Yeah. I walked with an Italian pilgrim and she had to, to stop walking in Astorga because the doctors told her her feet were infected and, and she was like she was in danger to continue walking would have endangered her health so it's a very serious issue and it could as you, you say ruin your your journey i suppose a, a simple question keith would be does everyone need them so again it's not necessarily that everybody needs orthotics so it's more of people need maybe different modifications so it comes down to 
it's really a preparation thing. So there's a before you go and there's a while you're there. So the before you go, the make the biggest investment in time and do trial and error. So before you go, it's not about spending a lot of money and going and getting like the best hiking boot or the best trail running shoe in, in the, and going from there. It's actually about learning your feet aggressively. You know, maybe see a professional like an orthotist, uh, depending on you know where you're at, your your part of the country. But you know, as you mentioned, the skin is that's a protective layer. That's what's keeping infections from getting into those in into your body. And so, where are you going to have a big breeding ground of bacteria to begin with? Is boy inside of that shoe? And you know, you're constantly I hear on the on your podcast that the Camino provides, and boy, it sure does. And I and I I, I can't wait to go back because of what it provides. But boy, it can also take away and it can take away that skin layer pretty doggone fast. And uh, so it's not that everybody needs any kind of orthotic, but they might need some modifications to the shoes themselves. So the first question you would ask before you go is, do I want to wear a hiking boot for this type of trail or do I want to wear trail running shoes? I'm a, I'm a trail runner as well. And uh, I wore trail running shoes. My wife wore trail running shoes. In our trainings, we found that... Uh, for me, for instance, I actually found in my trainings that I needed to put a little silicone toe spreader between my fourth and fifth toes because I pronate, I have orthotics, but my foot tends to slide towards the outside of that shoe, especially going down slopes. And so it causes my two toes at the end to rub. So I took care of that in my training and that, that was part of my morning is when I put that silicone toe spreader in. On my right side, I put a big donut pad on the back of my heel, not because I had a blister, but because I felt that twinge, what I call the, the check engine light came on in my body and said, hey, something's going on in the back of your heel. So, Dan, really, we have this saying as well that you don't you, you really shouldn't know you have a body part. So if you think about it, like like tonight, you get up and you walk away from your desk, you walk away and you shouldn't know that, hey, my ankle just bent, my knee just bent. I did this to clear the ground. No, if you know that you have a body part, so if you know about your foot as you're walking, Something's probably wrong is what's going on there. And when we do this whole boots versus trail running shoes, let's, let's kind of begin with that because that's a big debate of when I was over there. People are like, why should I have gotten boots? Should I have gotten trail running shoes? Um, here's the main thing that I would say is your, your two big things to consider. If your sole is stiff, which is really pretty common when you see a, a hiking boot, it takes a lot to break that in. So if the sole is really stiff, that means you're going to have a hard time kind of getting a really good true bend of your toes as you're, as you're walking, as you're pushing off that late part of stance on every single step where your toes bend and then you, you push off and the other foot hits the ground. If that's stiff, your compensatory motion of not being able to bend your toes is what we call an early heel rise. Early heel rise means that heel is going to ride up in the back of that shoe. And you know, what's not your friend on that, on the, the Camino? is friction. Friction is not your friend at all. That is the enemy. So anything you can do to present, prevent the friction, that's the first thing. If you're going to wear boots, well, you better spend time just at home with your hands, even just bending and bending and bending and bending until you can get that sole to be really flexible. The other thing is we have three rockers when we walk. So when we walk, our ankle bends, our heel hits the ground, our ankle bends. Then our leg rolls over our foot. Then we, our ankle bends again as we push off. Um, sometimes those boots, if you think about it, it comes above the ankle. So that's going to prevent, uh, some of that bending as you're going up and down some of these pretty steep slopes, which, uh, is going to cause again, then more friction there. So not everybody needs orthotics kind of back to that original question, yeah. 
But everybody needs to consider before they go, what do my feet do inside of the hiking boot or inside the trail running shoe that I'm using? And then to seek out, to seek out help before I go. Because if you've got any kind of check engine light popping on on you, you've got any kind of anything that's starting to kind of give you a little twinge or letting you know you've got a foot on, on at the end of that leg there. When you go to thirty to 40,000 steps per day and then doing it again the next day and the next day after it, it is again going to go back to, it's going to take away from that, you know, the, the heart and the passion. And um, so it's really important to consider the, the pregame, I would call that, the before you go. Because I think most people are in trouble because the, the pregame itself was, yeah, you know, I just figured it would break in a little bit more as I walked, right? I develop a callus. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a trouble spot to be there. So, Keith, what's a common telltale sign that I'm headed for trouble with my feet? Uh, I could be, I, I could have been walking and had no problems for a long time. All of a sudden, I, I, I get a telltale sign. What, one, what might one of those be? That's an absolutely great question. And that is exactly what we're referring to is that check engine light pops on and you go, uh-oh. So for me, I'll give you a good example for myself is all of a sudden, the back of my heel, I'll start to feel. So when I was doing, doing our Camino, when I would go down slopes, for instance, my toes obviously are going to kind of ride towards the front of that shoe. So about every 10 steps, I'd kind of kick my heel to the back of the shoe to get my toes from rubbing the front there. Um, then when I go uphill, that was my weakness going up the slope, not from a standpoint of getting up that slope. It was more because my heels would then ride on the backs of my shoes. And for me, that's my trigger spot. And that's what I knew in my pregame work that, hey, if I feel that spot back there, I'm going to be in trouble because that means that it's rubbing in that spot there. So besides using, as we said, I use a little donut pad that I taped on, left it on the entire time. Um, besides that strategy, as I would go up the hill, I would actually, about every 10 steps, I'd kind of scuff the, my, the ball of my foot on the shoes to kind of push my foot forward so that I wouldn't be riding so hard on the backs of, uh, on the backs of my heel. So again, it would go back to, it's pretty easy to tell when you're going to have an issue. And that is you should not know any part of your foot inside of that shoe. And if you're starting to get those, then, then it's going to be a problem. So here's what happens. I saw as a common thing as well, Dan, is, is that people got these really well fitted. and they did. They, the, the, the hiking shoe or the trail runner fit absolutely perfect. But what people didn't factor in is your foot's going to be a little bigger. What you should really be doing is trying those, those boots or trail running shoes on with kind of a thick pair of socks. Mm -hmm. And then when you go over there and you're wearing your thin pair of socks, it gives you that little extra room for that, you know, you're, no matter what age you are, you know, the Camino is not going to discriminate. You, it's not, it has nothing to do with being older. It's nothing to do with, hey, I'm, I tend to swell more anyway. Everybody's feet are going to gain some volume from doing this, these types of, uh, types of walks. And to have a little bit of room in there is going to be a, a really, really good thing to go a long way. Because, again, all of a sudden, when that foot gains room, your trigger point is the fact that, oh, my gosh, my, my feet are getting, like, all these spots. One particular pilgrim we met from Ireland um, I saw her after the second evening. I said, how you doing? She's I'm doing absolutely terrible. She had eight blisters, eight blisters between her feet. And her feet looked like, uh, well, like they, they were just taped from above the ankle all the way to the toes. So the trigger would be anything, anytime you notice your feet that are inside those shoes, you got to 
I, I say when you get the, the little trigger there, you got to do the whole stop, drop, and roll. You got to stop. <laughs> you got to take those boots off, and you got to just drop, drop the bag, and you got to start figuring out what am I going to do now to prevent later? Because most people, what they end up doing, Dan, is they're they're just dealing with the remedy, you're dealing with the problem at hand. When really it comes down to is you know when you do your way. For me, I'm a like I said, I. When I first, the first day it was from St. John P to Port, it was how fast can I get to Ron Savalas? Yeah. You know, and I'm looking at my watch and I'm timing it. And about halfway through, I realized that there's, I'm not going to get more dinner from because I got there faster than somebody else. And I'm not running because the beer is going to run dry there waiting for us. It's, you can go at your own pace. You can, you can, you can stop. You can take as many breaks as you want. And those breaks are going to be the key to check and inspect any of those little trigger spots. Do orthotics wear out because I could get fitted and, and I'm comfortable and then I go and walk a couple of hundred kilometers in preparation for my Camino. Can I wear them out? Oh, great. Another great question. Yes, absolutely. And here's the thing is your foot orthotics, depending on what they're made of, if they're going to be a more rigid, like a carbon fiber or plastic, um, the top cover itself will probably wear out. But the majority of people that are hiking, that are high-end runners, um, these are going to be more of a, what we call semi-rigid, which is going to be more of a, a foam-based type of orthotic, which, yes, over time, it's going to break down. And here's the issue you have. In your training, you're going to be doing a lot of miles, and that's going to put a lot of wear on them. But the last thing you want to do is right before you go is have your orthotics, you know, like beefed up we would say so like for a pronator we would increase the arch itself for a uh we, we look at the weight bearing and make sure that's getting good contact with the orthotic but right before you leave is not a good time to do that so i would suggest if people do get orthotics you'd want to get them six months beforehand and then you want to have them looked at about a month before you leave because what's going to happen is if you do it right before you go you're going to end up with pressure spots just from the orthotics themselves because the amount of steps that you'll be taking but the other thing that's important is how the orthotics sits in the shoe so you can't be using these in a pair of shoes and then switch into the trail you, you buy a new pair of trail running shoes two weeks before you go you stick the orthotic in there you don't know how that's going to fit it may tighten up so much that it, it's squeezing your foot it may tip your foot one way versus the other because it's not sitting well in that particular shoe as well um so yeah they're going to wear out because of the amount of miles so my suggestion would be just to have them looked at you know a good four to six weeks before you leave and to go from there because the other great thing about orthotics is they're great pressure maps. They'll actually let you know. I look at them all the time and go, oh, hey, look, you're actually bearing a lot of weight here, mm. which means you, we, need to, we need to actually take and, uh, and uh, let, let me give you an example. I think it's better to explain it that way. So somebody's getting a lot of pressure at the ball of their foot. So I see this big indention in the orthotic itself. Well, the ball of the foot is actually just the end of a long bone. So what I do is I put a little pad and I tape it or I, I glue it and adhesive it to the orthotic and bring the pressure behind the ball of the foot or right before you get to what you would say proximal to that area. And it's a little bump that just puts the pressure behind it, taking the pressure off of the area in front of it. Um, Dan, actually, at, a, at one of the uh, when we got together after the second day, there was a young woman I met from uh, Germany on our on our, our uh, on our way that that day. On the trail, and I said to her, I said, "Oh, I said, I said, how are you doing?" She said, "Oh, I've got a terrible blister underneath the ball of my foot." I said, "Well, let me look at it." 
And so here we are. She took her shoe off and I, I just took the insole, not even an orthotic she has. I took a couple napkins and I folded into a, and made a little, a little elevation, a little pad. And I taped it to the bottom of her insole, put it back in and said, well, now you'll bear weight before the ball of the foot. Um, I don't recommend anybody, by the way, on here starting to do some <laughs> home remedies, home modifications, but um, it, with, with my background, it allowed me to be able to, to uh, make a modification to her orthotic to help her out with what was surely going to be um, a problem from day to day to day and continue to progressively get worse. Do they need to be washed? The orthotics? Yeah. They don't need to be, but they can be. You know, I, I would I would tell you that uh, the only reason I wash my orthotics is uh, I tend to, I run a lot of miles and I tend to uh, perspire in them and, uh, you know, keeping them clean is going to be good with like antibacterial type things. Because sure. again, if you do develop a blister, the bigger concern is, is yeah, an infection getting in. And so if you can keep them uh, not necessarily clean, but more, uh, more in a, uh, you know, the least amount of bacterial growth on, on your orthotic or on the insole of your shoe, the, yeah, the better. Cause you may just end up, you know, again, it's one of those things where you can do everything you can preventative, but you just still might end up with a little bit of a uh, little trouble spot that you're going to have to deal with out there. And you, as you mentioned, uh, the pilgrim you talk about, boy, that's the extreme situation is to be in a situation where it's over and you have to go home. I can't even, I can't even imagine coming. I hadn't come across anybody that went to that extreme, but I can tell you the, another thing that happens is you develop what I was calling a wave. And my, the wave for me was, um, I was a kind of a collector of countries in the sense of I, I, I couldn't wait to meet people from so many different countries. By the time I was done, I met people from 18 countries. And uh, the thing for me was I wouldn't want to skip a day. I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I, I lost my wave, that whole group that I've become really mm. close to. I think uh, the Camino family is, yeah. guess, is, yeah. is what I'm getting at. And so for a lot of people, when they were one of the things that really upset them about getting any kind of issues was they were just t- just terrified that they would have to you know skip a day for instance and one day would cost them then the wave and nobody wanted to send their bags ahead because you'd say well maybe take some weight off send a bag ahead or, or take a bus for that day and so you can stay with your wave well but then it kind of takes away that heart and that passion i mean there's you know if you have to you take the bus or you send the bag ahead but if it's important to you to carry the bag it's important to you that every, you know, that you hit every step on the, on the way there, then, then that's going to, that's going to hit you, hit you pretty hard then in those, those types of, uh, those types of situations there. You mentioned about sweating and Keith, I'm interested in uh, whether sweating in your shoes can create problems. And, and the first, that's the first part of the question. The second is, do you have any remedies that can reduce sweating in your shoes? Well, you start out with, uh, you know, wicking socks are always really good because uh, another thing besides friction, that's not your friend out there on the trail. And that is any kind of moisture inside that shoe is not going to be your friend when it comes to uh, preventative of any kind of blistering like that. So I would say to you many times, uh, Dan, I just stopped. I took my shoes, my socks off, and I just kind of I just let them breathe. I just let the air hit them. And, uh, you know, again, you're living out of your bag. So the wonderful thing about it was if I had noticed that my socks had, were carrying quite a bit of perspiration, well, I just put a fresh pair on 
And uh, again, it's not a race to the end. So there's no problem with taking a break. Um, It's interesting what you say, though, about about perspiration. Well, another one we'll go to is every time I had a chance to put my feet into like some cold water, you know, like you see some rivers come through some of the towns. And boy, I tell you, I couldn't a a good friend that I that I met from Portugal, both in where we were standing next to each other in Zabiri with our feet ankle deep in the river. And just in a like, looking like if I was doing yoga, like a like a tree pose, because as he said, I'll quote him. It was great. He said, you know, he said, any reward you give yourself on the Camino is actually doubled on the Camino. I said, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I said, right now, my ankles and my feet are just thanking me. And not to mention it was actually, you know, obviously with the cold water, it's bringing down the swelling or any kind of extra volume in your in your feet. And, uh, and I, I don't tend to swell, but I can tell you as soon as I put those, those boots back or my, my hike, my, my trail running shoes back on, it was very, very, uh, I could tell I tightened them up even more. Now you got to be careful with that. One of the ladies as that passed us, um, she looked over at my friend from Portugal, myself and Amy and said, Hey, that's a big no, no on a hike. Never put your feet in water and then put them back in your back into your shoes. And, uh, so I thought about it for a little bit and I thought, well, what kind of, is that, is that an old wives tale? What could be the reason for that? Yeah. So as we were walking, I never did get any kind of blisters because of that. And so I thought, I think I figured it out. So when you come out of that cold water, your foot, you brought the volume down again, and then you lace up. And if you make the mistake of really lacing up pretty tight, then as you get back to that volume again, cause we still had, we couldn't stay in Zabiri. Um, we had to stay a few miles, uh, on from Zabiri. So we, uh, took a few miles after that, that, uh, that, that little soaking of our feet. And, uh, I noticed that, oh yeah, I need to loosen these shoes up because they're getting, a, they're getting a little tight back to what you said. What's the trigger? Well, all of a sudden I noticed that I had feet again, cause they were getting a little tight in my shoes. So I just stopped and I just loosened up the laces a little bit. And then for me, again, as I said, I tend to ride on the backs of my heels. I actually took the top hole, you know, the laces out of the top holes. And didn't use the top hole because I didn't want anything really pushing me back against my heels. Because again, I was just 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 listening is what I was doing. Listening, listening to my body as I was going there. Because again, if you know that you've got a part of that foot, then guess what? It is going to be when you take that shoe off that night. It's going to be something you got to deal with. You got to then figure out, my gosh, do I drain the blister or do I leave the blister? What do I do? Mm. You know, the big question everybody was constantly, uh, constantly asking. Just simply while you're there, just listen to your body is yeah. what it comes down to. What about lacing your shoes, Keith? If I'm someone who perhaps feels their heel moving a little in the back of his, of his shoe like you did or or, or like you, I get my, my toes sort of tend to crunch up a little bit at the front of my shoe. There are so many different ways of lacing a shoe. How do I find the the one that's right for my foot, the, the, the shape of my foot? Or is there one that everybody should be using, one universal lacing? Well, unfortunately, it is going to be unique to each person. But it's not only going to be unique from a standpoint of person to person, but let's go from that would be your drone view. Let's go really right to one person. So, so for instance, you, Dan, or myself is I might have, I may have to change my laces the way they are based on that part of the day, how long I've been walking. Mm. Um, if this is going to be one, that's going to be a lot of climbing or it's going to be more of just a flat type of walking. Um, 
The lacing is going to be important though, because again, for me, if I were to lace them up really tight, I'm going to have big, big problems for me because of the back of my heels. The key is going to be, again, listen to that body. If I'm riding forward in my shoe and I, my toes are just crunching towards the end of that, or I'm getting a lot of friction under my toes there, I probably better think about lacing my, my, myself up and getting myself pulled back um, further towards the, uh, the back of the heel there. I tend to, for instance, for me, I actually, how do I describe this to you? So when I, when I go to tie my shoes, instead of being at a 90 degree angle of my foot to my leg, like you would normally lace up for me, I actually bend my leg forward over my foot and lace up as well. Cause then it gives me that little bit of slide there on the back. Cause I've accepted I, my heel tends to kind of rub up in the back there. My trail running shoes always have a hole in the back behind my heel. And uh, so I know that I have to pay attention to that, uh, to that particular type of uh, type of spot there. But, but with the, the lacing, it, it's, it's going to be more about, it's going to change as you go um, and, and, and just listen to your body. So if you change it up and you start walking and go, uh-oh, that helped there, but uh-oh, it's now causing a little problem there. Then you have to change the strategies on yeah. the lacings. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many different ways you can lace a shoe. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's quite, once you dig in a little deeper, it's quite a rabbit hole you can go down. Um, so you, you can do a lot of research and, and find one that, that suits you. I got a question I'm sure my listeners would expect me to ask is, do orthotics cost a million dollars, Keith? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Well, here's how it goes. So if you do progress to where you need a, a pair of orthotics or, or you have that type of foot and ankle pronated, supinated, um, first things first is you may be able to get away with an off the shelf type of option. Um, you can also get custom molded type orthotics. And depending on, you know, where you're at, I'm in the U.S. here, so I can give you a kind of example of that here is, is that uh, for most orthotics, it's going to range from between probably $250 to $400 per pair. And that's going to be varying from what part of the country you're in. But then also uh, some insurance companies here in the U.S. actually cover that as well. And then, and then others don't cover it at also. But um, at the end of the day, I would tell you that that is a pack small, but plays really, really big when you get over there. Because yeah. once you get there, what would be the price to you? I mean, if I had a big blister underneath the ball of my foot, for instance, and I'm over there, boy, I tell you what, I would be paying a lot. I mean, a lot of the people that I bumped into were popping into medical clinics all over the place. And for some of them, um, I'll give you an example. One of the, one of the, uh, the pilgrims I walked with, I said to him, I said, Oh man, I said, you actually pronate. I said, your foot really, I said, I'm walking with you behind you and your foot really falls in. I said, I'm really concerned about the inside of your foot, man. I said, uh, you're going to have to kind of like, when you go down them hills and things, you're going to kind of watch, you know, the inside of your foot on that shoe. And uh, sure enough, next day, boy, he had a pretty good blister on that side. He said, should I get some orthotics? I said, well, you can't now because if you get orthotics, where the pressure spot is going to be to tilt your foot back to that neutral position is right where you've got the blister. So unfortunately, you're going to be moving over to some sandals. I mean, here's what happened is a majority of people that were in these positions, I, I really felt like I was on a true pilgrimage with a lot of pilgrims because sandals became the way. As a matter of fact, Dan, I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw somebody that that was walking the trail barefoot, both feet out of shoes, no sandals, no socks. And as I looked at his feet, I went, oh, my goodness, no wonder. I don't think I could put my – I don't think I could – there were so many different blisters going on that I went, 
oh my gosh, I think I would be walking barefoot as well, you know? So it's, uh, I couldn't believe it. It was just one, the one, and, and, and it was so much so that I, I even talked about him. The rest, I said, anybody that, that would pass would pass me, or I'd, I'd say, "My goodness, did you see that pilgrim back there? It was completely barefoot." But it lets you know that, hey, you know what? Your heart, you're 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 going to make it. You're going through this. You're here. This is your Camino, and uh, whatever it takes, you're 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 gonna you're gonna do it. You're gonna get through it. Yeah. What is pl- you mentioned before? Plantar fasciitis. What is that? Oh. Plantar fasciitis. Uh, let's just tell you who get. Well, let's first start about what is it. Okay, so there's a, a a muscle that is in the middle of your foot, and but it has tendons that connect it to the from the heel and to the toes. And so what happens is when you walk, that actually tensions. And if you're who gets it. So if you pronate, for instance, remember we said somebody whose arch collapses to the inside. Well, if you think about that. If your foot, your arch is collapsing, well, that big, long tendon, think of it as just being like a rubber band in between your heel and the, right. and the, and the toes, it's going to get this constant stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch. Well, where it's tendinous, back by that heel, can take some, uh, some stretch and some, get some micro tears on it. Well, guess what happens when you sit down? Your body responds the way it should. You get inflammation there. And inflammation then is going to cause that to tighten right there. So the very first thing you do when you get up after sitting down or going to bed for the evening is you're going to go, oh, ouch. Because when it first starts, it then you're pulling the rubber band again, and it is tight, and it is sore, and it can be inflamed. Yeah. Um, who gets this, though? Anybody that – so here in, the, here in Missouri, we get some very good seasons. We get really cold weather in the winter, and we get really uh, – um, you know, hot weather, 100, 100 degree Fahrenheit here in, uh, in St. Louis today with high humidity. But when you come out of winter and you go into spring, everybody like comes out of hibernation. Everybody goes running and they go and do all this activity. So they get this dramatic increase in their activity. Well, guess what happens? A lot of people get plantar fasciitis at that exact time. That's the busiest time of year for me to see somebody with plantar fasciitis because they're going from doing not a lot to doing a, doing more. Now, when you go from training, you know, you've done some training, but who can take five hours and walk every single day? You know, we were training by walking with the bags once a week. And uh, so what happens is you go from this, you're trained, you're ready to go. And then you get over there and you're doing this day in and day out. And guess what? All of a sudden you've pulled hard on the plantar fascia and you're in a position where you'll do anything because that, that pain Dan, of plantar fasciitis. I had it one time in my life and I thought that somebody was, was hammering a nail into my heel so much oh. so that I was in an orthopedic clinic and I said to the, the orthopedist, I said, Oh, I got to get my heel uh, x-rayed. Can you x-ray? I said, I think it's broken. And uh, we x-rayed and said, Nope, there's just a little hot spot right there where the plantar fascia attached. And sure enough, plantar fasciitis. And uh, so I knew from experience what this was. I met a pilgrim on the, on the, the walk that uh, had plantar fasciitis. And, and she said to me, this was her third day there, said, well, I got myself some brand new hiking boots in the town yesterday. And I said, oh no. I said, you just bought, brand, you're going to wear brand, like <laughs> these, this is day one. <laughs> yesterday was day zero. I said, my gosh, you're going to be, those feet are going to be in real, you're going to have more troubles than plantar fasciitis. I mean, who's, I forget who said the quote there, but the, I said, if you ever want to forget all of your problems in life, 
put on tight shoes. All those troubles you're thinking about will go away very quickly because of all the pain that you're going to get. Well, sure enough, the next day, um, I saw her back on the trail and uh, she was one of those that joined the sandal group because those brand new uh, shoes, they did help with the feeling of her plantar fasciitis, but they then caused blisters, obviously, because they were they were brand new and not, uh, yeah. not broken in. So, wow. so plantar fasciitis, I mean, you can do some, there are some things you can do there. You know, it's too late to like throw on an orthotic if you're a pronator, but you can deal with some of the symptoms. You know, a frozen water bottle is a really great one. Or if there's a, you know, if you bring a tennis ball is, is you just roll it, you know, just put your foot on top of it and roll it. And, you know, that'll help with the inflammation, help get some of that pain out and help stretch that, uh, that out for you as well. Um, but that kind of comes down to another really important point here, Dan, is, is bring a kit with you and a kit meaning. I mean, there's a thing called shear band. You've heard of moleskin, right? Yeah. Well, the moleskin's a thing of, of, of really the past for, for at least for me from a running standpoint, for me in my office. Um, 28 years ago when I first started in the field, moleskin was on it. I put it on everything. Anytime there's this or that, the moleskin on it. There's a thing called shear band now that is really, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Teflon material. And it is wonderful, Dan, because you can cut pieces out of it. They even make little ovals for it. Um, it's for the high energy runners when it, when it was, uh, when, uh, I saw it first in the sports, but I, but it first came out in our field to help out with any kind of pressure areas and different bracing and things that we were making for, for children with like cerebral palsy, for instance, and where any kind of little rub spots, we could cut down on friction with it. That's something that packs very small, but plays really big, um, little makeshift, little pads, things like that, that can be, that can be put in there. Those little foam toast, my wife used foam toe spacers on her toes she used a deodorant stick and just rubbed her entire foot down with it to make it so that uh you know she cut down on any kind of friction inside of her uh inside of her sock there but this was our kit and of everything that was in my bag you know how you think about i think some i think one of your one of your guests on your show was talking about one time and i and i was telling a lot of people there i said you know there was a pilgrim on the camino the podcast of dan mullins and i said they were talking about something really cool. The metaphor was that the bag and all the extra stuff that they brought in it that they didn't need was kind of a symbol of their life in the sense of what kind of things do I not need in my life? And I can put things in and I can take them out. I brought an iPad with me on the, on the, on the, the trail. I never once pulled that iPad out. <laughs> and, but all these things I felt I needed in my bag, well, a little kit takes up so very little of room. Yeah but would be one of the most valuable things that you can have on the, on that. Because again, if you've done your training, you've listened. And if you notice any little trigger, little twinge when you're doing your training, that thing's, that is going to be a problem. You're going to be part of the pandemic of the blister mania. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> one last question about making walking more comfortable, because I want to get to your Camino, which is really interesting. A lot of pilgrims complain, <laughs> Keith, about shin soreness. I had it. Uh, what is it and how do I treat it? Yep. And that is a big one. That's your, we call those shin splints is what they are, but what they really are is inflammation of your pre-tibial muscles. Okay. So what that means is you, when you lift your foot, we call it dorsiflexion. So just lift your foot at your ankle. You're just bending it up towards your foot. Okay. That's those muscles right there that are the shin splint muscles. And how do you get them? Well, two things cause it. If your Achilles tendon and the back of your leg is tight, your foot has to lift up against that tight Achilles tendon. Okay. And you got to do it 30 to 30,000 to 40,000 times. 
that right there is going to cause extra, right? So get rid of that Achilles tendon. I'm sorry, Achilles tightness before you go. You should have with your knee bent or some sorry knee straight. You should be able to bend your ankle 20 degrees past 90 degrees. If you can't do that, especially people that have high arches and are supinators, as we mentioned, um, you got to be doing those stretching exercises before you go. Now, second person who gets those shin splints or the inflammation of those pretibial muscles. What are we doing a lot of on that trail? We're going up hills, right? Up slopes. Yeah. So when I walk on a flat ground, I just kind of have to lift my foot right to about when you slow it down and look at kinesiology studies, we don't even bring our foot, our feet to 90 degrees when we clear the ground and swing. Okay. But what we actually do is as we're walking, what happens is up a hill, we're lifting our foot up past that 90 degrees. So now we're challenging. We're going much further than we normally do. So what's that going to do? That's going to be using that muscle and taxing it in kind of a range area where it doesn't always go to on an everyday basis. Um, so that's why it's important also before you go, don't forget to train on uphills. Mm. Because again, if you're not training on some uphills, when you get over there, you may get shin splints. And again, any kind of inflammatory process, this type of thing can be the same kind of thing as that plantar fasciitis where, boy, it can be really just a, a it can really take away from, you know, that, as you mentioned in the, in your, in the introduction here, the really the meditative part of of being out there on the Camino. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Keith, thank you so much for your scholarship. I, I really, really appreciate it. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and learning. But let's get to the Camino, because you wrote to tell me that you walked in tribute to your wife's father, who had a passion for the trail before passing. Tell us that story. Oh, we did. His Amy's father lived by the by the quote. He well, that's because he passed away about three years ago. And our plan that year was to walk the Camino with him because he had done it twice in full in his seventies and was just really passionate about it. It was his love. He, he first of all, he loved Europe anyhow, and he loved European travel, but he really had a special passion and he learned of it through the, again, like most of us from, from the U S from the movie, the way, mm. and uh, boy, he trained, he loved it. He was so excited for us. We were to, we were, going to be going with him the year that he passed and he passed and so we said here's what we're going to do we're going to pay tribute to him by by continuing and doing the the camino and then guess what happened the pandemic happened uh-huh. and so obviously there went two years and so dan what happened it, it's uh it's it was um her father was a was a man who he lived by the like in his eulogy i said uh he was a man that lived by the quote of, by Hunter Thompson that said, life's not a journey. It shouldn't be a journey with the intention of arriving safely in this well-preserved body. But rather, at the end there, you should be skidding in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and just loudly proclaiming about life. Wow, what a ride. And that's what, that's how he lived. So, so we did, we said, we're going to, we're going to pay this tribute. We're going to go over there and, uh, and, uh, and we're going to, and we had some, I, you know, I can't wait to tell you the, gosh, we had some really great moments on the, on the Camino that, uh, that we really felt like uh, that he was there and was, was, was given a little, uh, just a little, a uh, couple of little hints that he was, that he was there with us. Oh, how wonderful is that? That's so great. Tell us about what you called collecting countries. 
Ah, uh, yes. Well, here's what happened. So, I, you know, on the Camino, I found the common theme was a lot of people are coming from something and they're really on a journey looking for what to go to. So a from to. Well, I really wasn't there for a from or two. I was there for this tribute and, uh, and, and to be with my, my, my wife with this tribute. And so I said, Amy, I said, oh, I said, you know, I'm kind of a jabber jaws. And I, I, I just, for me, I just, I just want to hear people's stories. And I want, I love, I'm the guy that's at midnight still at the, at the campground fire. Cause I want to hear people's stories, where they've come, where they've come from, what they're, what they're there for. And after the very first, uh, we were on our way to, uh, out of St. John Port. Immediately, I had met people from three different countries, and we talked for a good hour and a half and just got great stories. So I, I finally, every time I'd meet somebody, I'd say, oh, by the way, where are you from? And they'd say, uh, oh, I'm from Croatia. And I'd, they'd say, why you ask? I said, well, because I'm collecting countries. I said, I, this is, this is, I want to I know about your country. I want to know about, 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 about your, uh, why you're here and uh, if it, so I, be, I called myself and became known as on our pil- pilgrimage as the collector of countries. At the end of a day, somebody would introduce me and somebody would say, he's a collector of countries. And then I go, where are you from? And he'd say, Germany. I go, oh, well, that's great. But, 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 but I'll just tack that one on. I'm still, look, I'm still looking for somebody from Scotland. And you know anybody <laughs> from Argentina? Do you know anybody from Australia? So when I would meet somebody that was, it was, it became this passion of when, when I'd meet somebody from, uh, from uh, let's uh, a good example of this was I met a uh, a group from South Africa and I got super and they said okay well no one's really given us a greeting like that before I said oh I said <laughs> but you're you don't understand you're helping me complete my collection <laughs> so it was uh, so for me I called it the the collector of countries is what uh, is what it was for me and how many countries did you end up with eighteen countries wow <laughs> yes that's great. Yes. And you were you, yes. you were collecting, as you said, experiences as you listened to their stories. And there's nothing quite like those long Spain afternoons sitting around talking to people from all around the world. And if I was to pick you up and drop you in a favorite place, where would it be? Well, I would say it'd be for me. It'd be more about day four for me because it took me the first day. It took me a long time to realize that. Uh, it's okay to not be on my cell phone, and it's okay that uh, back in the states that that my that my day is still going on back there, and I'm not connected anymore. But it took me a few days to get uh, to get past that, and then around day four, I realized that boy, there's really something special about even in collecting the countries and meeting so many people. I I never really thought that I would enjoy being alone. And there were many times where all of a sudden I'd be walking and I'd notice that uh, that nobody was around. My wife was maybe maybe back behind me, some quite some distance, and uh, and it and it gave me the, this this wonderful place that I that I I don't get in an everyday life. And being over there, people say, "Oh no, we got to climb another hill. We got to go up another this amount of meters." I go, "Yeah, but for me." I'm going to get to be up there by myself looking down and just seeing the beauty from being up above. The carrot was being up at the, at the top. So I would say to you, being around day four in the mindset, but to me, no, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing beat that day one of, of coming out of St. John, Port 
and climbing and getting up to that 1400 meters and just, just looking across and going, wow, this is something I don't see, especially, you know, here in St. Louis, Missouri on a, on a, on a basis ever. And so, uh, yeah. I would say that'd be the place you could drop me back. If you could put yeah. me in the mindset of day four on the position of being on top of the, on top of Spain, really there yeah. of day one coming, coming out of St. John Peter port. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. So how does the Camino resonate in your and Amy's life now? Well, that's a great question because here's what we want to do. Our tribute, our, our processes, we would like to go back to this as well with, we have, we have three children. One is, uh, Oh, 22 years old and getting ready to graduate from, uh, from university, from college. And then we have one that is, uh, 19 and is a sophomore in university and then we have a 15 year old who was actually that's kind of interesting as well our 15 year old was actually on exchange in pomplona oh. and so it was really great to be able to walk through pomplona and to be able to meet his host family and you know i call them my i, I pomplona mama and pomplona papa because that's <laughs> that was his mama and papa there in uh in Pamplona. So while it was great to see, see Gavin, it was also really neat to see Gavin get to experience the, the town. And I, and, and after he could come back home, he said, I said to him, I said, you glad to be back? He says, well, yes, but I really enjoyed getting to see the, you know, I mean, Dan, it was, it was 10 o'clock at night before it was dark. Yeah. So, so many nights we'd be almost missing curfew because it's it would fool us. We think it's eight o'clock at night still, and so the culture is so different over there that uh, and that the towns are just, you know, especially Pamplona and the old. He got he was staying in the in the in by the by the plaza area there and wow. where the running of the bulls are. Wow! And so it was. Uh, so we really would like our each of our children to go back with us and do a what we would like them to do is do a fourth each one of them do a fourth of it with us, and we we're we're, we're hoping and we're planning to do this consecutively for for the next three years, and uh, each one of them walk a quarter of it with us to uh, to be able to uh, to pay tribute to the to the to their grandfather, but also in the same token, really to get I, I just had no idea the the this what we would see the, the, what we would be be walking through and and uh and experiencing yeah so, so how do you describe the camino to family and friends who ask about it keith well here's i said this to the pilgrims on the road i said i don't know how i'm going to describe this to people because it's like a picture and you show something and say well but this doesn't do it justice when amy's father used to Boy, he'd be training and he'd be, and at the time I was training for, you know, half marathons, marathons. And so to me, I, I'd be going, yeah, that's great. And oh, you're getting good shape. And this is great. You're doing this. But then when I'd leave, I'd, I'd say to my wife, I'd say, well, well, it's just walking. I can't believe he's training and he's doing all. And oh boy, that's where life is all about perspective. Because <laughs> <laughs> once the very first time when Amy said that we want to, we want to train for this. I uh, said, well, okay, let's just go walk. We'll walk to my mom and dad, just 13 miles from my house. I said, let's just walk there. And let's, let's see how we do. Well, we threw on our bags. We loaded them up with weight. Dan, after seven miles of walking, I was in, I was in agony. Wow. And by the time I made it to my mother's, I sat down and I thought, I don't think I'm going to be able to get back up. 
And so <laughs> how I describe to people is that it's, it's definitely way more challenging uh, than you, than you think, but in the same token, boy, the care at the reward is just, it's massive. And it's, uh, and uh, Dan, the time that I was able to spend with even myself, I did, I didn't expect to come out of it with any kind of, any kind of the Camino gave me back this, but boy, I tell you the mindset it would put you in just uh, the cow bells hanging from cows as you're walking by them. And they're, they're a foot from you. Um, as I mentioned, you know, putting my feet in cold water as we go through the towns. There's so many things on this that I would tell you, Dan, I'm a collector of experiences as well is what I like to say. And this is number one. I had no idea. I went doing this as a, as a, as going with my wife in support. And I came out of it and said, wow, that is the greatest experience that I have ever had in my life so far from the from a standpoint of just meditating reflecting and you couldn't help but to do it it's not you know if, if you if I tr- i've tried meditation in the past and my mind just wanders too much well i tell you, you get on that trail and and uh it's pretty easy because the voice in your head sometimes is your enemy but boy the voice in your head out there oh it's really really good it's it's just boy it's really good and it I wasn't asking for any kind of any kind of guidance or I, any identification of anything, but boy, it just did. Tell us a Camino story. Coming out of St. John Port, you know the the statue of the Virgin Doris. Of course, we get up, we get up there, and uh, right before I get there, I'm 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 already just I'm massively hungry, and I'm I'm ready. And all of a sudden, I look and I go, Dan's right. The Camino provides. There's a big table there, and it has. It, Dan, it had fruit, it had vegetables, it had wine. There were beers, there was bread, there was cheeses. <laughs> and I said to my wife, I said, oh my gosh, I guess the local farmers must bring food up here for pilgrims. What a wonderful, pl- I mean, what a wonderful way to start the, the Camino. And so I helped myself to some fruit, some vegetables, and I and I looked around and I thought, well, well I'd like to tip. And I know, you know, in Europe, it's not customary to tip, but... In the U.S., we we tip, and so I looked and couldn't find anywhere. To, so I just, you know, I flipped a couple of two dollar or two euro coins there on the table and made my way on. And as I'm eating a uh, eating a peach, I, I looked at my wife and I said, "Wait a minute!" About twenty minutes had passed, and I said, "Wait a minute!" There was a stove there. I said, "What pilgrim would stop and cook something on that stove?" I said, "Oh, Amy." I said, "I wonder that may not have been a." <laughs> A farmer leaving fruit and vegetables there, and then later a, another pilgrim had caught up to us and said and explained to us that was actually a VIP tour, and the, 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 the lady that set set that out for her tour had to go get two people that were uh, that were a little tired, so she went and picked them up, and so I went, oh my gosh, we actually that was not the, from the that's from so a, great, that's yeah, so, so great. but uh, well the Camino so does we, provide. Oh, we, we, <laughs> yeah, but it's so it did provide, but um, but my interesting story, Dan, is it has to do with your podcast as well. So when we finally decided that it was it was okay, it was time for us to with 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 uh, the COVID, it was time for us to make this this pilgrimage, and uh, the timing was just perfect because our our daughters are off in university, and and Gavin was off as an exchange student, so we said 
We don't have to be anywhere. We don't have to have all these places to drive to. Let's let's do it. So we did it. The that day, Dan, I I, I said uh, I, I I looked around for different podcasts because I'm kind of a podcast junkie, and we came across your podcast. The very first episode that I listened to in the in the archives, it did, it wasn't the interview with Lee Brennan. It was the mention you just had mentioned in it. Um, to something about the Lee Brennan Cafe. Well, Dan, guess what? Amy's father's name is Lee Brennan. And so I stopped my car. I pulled over. I sent my wife a text. I said, here is a link to a podcast. Go to, I think it was, I don't know, minute, four minutes, 26 seconds. Just listen right there. And she called me back and she said, it was meant to be. This is the very day that we decided we were going to make the pilgrimage. Your podcast had mentioned Lee Brennan Cafe. And at that time, we thought that must have been like a coffee shop or something that was uh, that was there. And my wife called me back and we were just both just in silence. Like, it's meant to be. It's a clue that, yes, wow, it is definitely time for us to go. Dan, it goes a step. It goes another step further than that. We're over there. We're on the third day and we're staying in one of the towns. We're having a pilgrim dinner, which by the way, if you go on the Camino, don't miss the pilgrim dinners. They are oh, absolutely. All, I, I, I could talk a whole podcast about pilgrim dinners, but <laughs> we met this couple that was from Belgium. First off, this couple, do you know where they started their Camino from? They opened their front door in Belgium and they walked to the Camino. Wow. They walked 2,000 kilometers wow. before they started their Camino. So they, we had met along the trail. Third day, they were fascinating people to talk to. But we were sitting at dinner, and I said, uh, well, we're from Missouri. And I, and I said, St. Louis. But I said, I'm sure, you know, you guys are in Belgium. I'm sure you've never heard of the city of St. Louis. It's just a, you know, a small, big city in, in, the, in the States, in the middle of the, the country. And the wife said, I've heard of St. Louis. I said, well, well, how did you hear of St. Louis? She said, well, back in the 70s, I worked in St. Louis. And I said, wow, wow, what a, what a connection here. I said, well, well, where did you work? She said, well, I worked, at a, I worked at a company called Ralston Purina. And I just stopped because I looked at my wife. And do you know where her father, Lee Brennan, where he worked in the 70s, early 70s was Ralston Purina. So then I went a step further and I said to her, I said, oh, what did you, what did you do in that Ralston Purina? She said, I worked in the accounting department. I was an accountant there. And I looked at Amy again because her father was an accountant as well at no Ralston way. Purina. Early 70s. And we did. We just had that moment where we looked at each other and, you know, we always say to each other, boy, life's just delivering all these clues. And are you just, are your ears open enough to listen to those clues? Because because life is good. It will, it, it, it's, it's the Camino. It will provide. You just got to be willing to listen. And that's the moment where we just went, there's our clue. There it is again. And, and uh, I looked at her at that, uh, the, the, the woman from uh, Belgium. And I said, boy, I said, I just can't believe that that is a coincidence. And then we explained to her and then she was able to as well see that, wow, I think that's just a little clue that, Hey, this was, that that was just a little, little nod to say, Hey, I'm, I'm over here with you. 
Wow. Oh, Keith, that is such a great story. My gosh. Look, we've been talking for an hour and I, I just want to keep talking to you, but I can't. I can't let the podcast go on too long. But look, just before I let you go, I, I like to pride myself on my research. I don't cut corners. And so I did a bit of research and, and I came across your bio at the laboratory where you work. And Keith, I was intrigued to read. Keith, in his free time, is also a magician, as well as a roller coaster enthusiast, being a member of both the International Brotherhood of Magicians, as well as the American Coaster Enthusiast Club. <laughs> yes, there are two other passions for me. Um, I've been in the Roller Coaster Enthusiast Club for 30 years. Um, and what that entails and why I joined that was because I, 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 I love a little bit of thrill, but I don't like like I don't want to jump out of an airplane because there's a lot more risk than I know that when I get on a roller coaster, all these positive G's, the negative G's, the I got one thing that that's there. I'm pretty guaranteed that I'm coming back to the point where I started. So I've uh, back in the day, I used to actually when a new roller coaster opened up, Dan, I'd hop on a flight, I'd go ride it, and then I'd hop back on a, a red eye that night and would be back at work the next morning. And, uh, so yeah, it's it just, you know, there's always this level of, of crazy, you know, I always say that as crazy as you think you are, boy, you, there's always another level of crazy That's out there. Just and, and then, uh, and then magician is, uh, it's just been a hobby that I never outgrew. And so, yeah, I can do, you know, I do shows now from, uh, from, from, you know, an audience of 50 all the way up to 2000, you know, so it's a very, it, it, it was a hobby that grew into a pretty good passion. And Dan, I'll tell you where I really enjoy doing my the, uh, the the art of, I guess, magic tricks. And that is, so I work with a lot of children with uh, cerebral palsy, a lot of children with spina bifida. Um, I work with the Burn Association. So I work with a lot of children and I'll go to their camps and I'll do uh, magic shows as well there. Um, and I'll also do them for them at the office because there's nothing, you know, it, it's, it, it's kind of scary to come into the office here to see us, right? And so this just puts them at ease and it's just, it, it's more fun. And it's, you know, like wow. sometimes I'll see on my schedule, Dan, it'll say nothing about the new brace or nothing about the, the prosthetic or, but what I'll see on the schedule is uh, make sure he knows I want to see a, I want to see a new magic trick. <laughs> <In the notes laughs> so good for so, you. Yeah. my Yeah. So hobbies are something that, uh, that I've always enjoyed. Dan, here's the issue. I sleep about four hours a night and, uh, and so I've got, you know, when people say, oh, I just don't have time. I have tons of time. And when people are, <laughs> so when the phones aren't ringing and people are sleeping, boy, you have a lot of time. And so it's led me into enjoying a lot of different, uh, different hobbies as well. That's so great. That is so great. And thanks for reaching out, Keith. Thanks for your scholarship and your encouragement. I think a lot of pilgrims will be grateful for your advice, including me. Give our best to Amy and Buen Camino. I will. And I'll give you one more quote as well that uh, that I used on the, the Camino. It hangs above my desk as well and has for many years. And I think it's a great one for the Camino. And it has great to do with our talk today. It's Muhammad Ali's, don't count the days. Make the days count. Meaning, are you asking while you're out there on that Camino, oh, how many days are left? Or are you asking... How many days do I get to be out here? In today's talk, I hope will allow you to be in that second part saying, 
oh, this is just wonderful. How much time do I get to be here making the days count? My guest this week was Keith Smith, an expert in orthotics and prosthetics from Missouri in the United States. I hope you learned something from our chat. I certainly did. And a big shout out to my new Patreon sponsors this week, Mark, Danielle, and Angelina. Thank you so much. And a very special thank you to long-term sponsors, Rick Dunn, Melanie Shadlick, Kylie Fisher, Monica Wiley, Jane Equez, Cindy Maguire, Scott McLaughlin, Andrew Rennie, and Tom Labazinski. Thank you for helping me to keep the show on the road or the Camino. (laughs) Remember, I started the show by reading part of an article from The Atlantic by Arthur C. Brooks. If one surrenders to the music, the Camino becomes a form of extended walking meditation, a practice in many religious traditions. You can find the Arthur C. Brooks article in The Atlantic. It's fantastic. It's called Go for a Walk. (laughs) Thanks for your company this week and every week, and thanks for your kindness. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino.